This is Educate, a podcast from APM Reports about ideas and research on how we teach and learn. I'm Stephen Smith. We had to make a model of the Earth, so I'm like, what's a way to do it out of cake? This is Mia. She's 14. Other kids did, like, pound cake, and they just put colors in it, but it didn't really work. But I, me, did this cake that's, like, standing up, and it's, like, the world. Here it is. There's Mia. Look how cute she is. That (laughs) is Mia's mom, Liz Hembling. She's got her phone out, and she's showing photos of various cakes that Mia has made over the years. I love to bake, and actually that's how I started really like liking to read, um, is by reading recipes. It was all part of a plot by her mom. Mia hated to read, so her mom bought her cookbooks. I would not read one word to her. She's like, what does it say? I'm like, you're going to have to figure it out. It's not just that Mia didn't like to read. It's that reading was really hard for her. Like we, um, for my school at least, you have like this little planner and like the teacher will write 20 minutes of reading in your planner. And I was like, that's too long. I'll cut it to like five. Because like my, in my mind, I'm like, this is hard and I don't want to do it. And I, I can't really. <laughs> Mia is dyslexic. But when she was little, no one knew it. In fact, Mia was in school for several years before her family started to figure out what was going on. Mia's teachers said everything was fine. They never mentioned the word dyslexia. This is actually pretty common. Families of dyslexic kids across the country say schools are not screening for dyslexia, not identifying it, and not treating it properly. Hundreds of thousands of dyslexic kids, maybe millions, are not getting what they need in American public schools, even though there's more than a century of research on what dyslexia is and what can be done to help people with dyslexia learn to read. Our correspondent Emily Hanford is working on a documentary about this, and on the podcast this week, she brings us a preview of the story of Mia and her mom Liz, how they figured out what was happening with Mia, what they did about it, and what they think needs to be done for millions of struggling readers in American public schools. Here's Emily. Ask any parent of a child with dyslexia, and they'll tell you that early on, they start to notice that something's not quite right. She was struggling terribly learning to read. You know, it wasn't fluent, but she was my first kid, so I wasn't really sure what was expected. She would start reading and she'd skip little words, like Anna of the whatever. Liz kind of brushed it aside because in other ways, Mia seemed so bright. You know, some of the things that she could do at a really young age were just bizarre in terms of just her intelligence level. She had a propensity for maps, and they had we had this game where you would have, like, um, states, and you would drop them into the map, but there was no grid on it. And it would tell you how close the state was. And she could drop a state like Kansas or one of those square states that no one even knows where they are on the map and drop it within five miles of where it goes. I mean, just crazy stuff like that. And she went up to her teacher. This was, I think, in second grade. They were talking about Mexico. And she went to her teacher and said, you know, your map's wrong. And she goes, what are you talking about? She goes, well, you know, Arizona borders Mexico, and it's not on the map. And the teacher's like, oh, my gosh, I got this map from the county. I didn't even really look at it. And sure enough, like, Arizona was missing, you know, or... You know, it was just like things like that, that a second grader, it was just bizarre. But still, Mia couldn't read the most basic words in books. And Liz was starting to get more and more concerned. And I remember going to the school in the end of second grade. I said, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. This child is very bright, 
but she is not reading the way that she should. And it was painful. I mean, she would read a page and her head would hurt and she didn't want to do it. Like to get her to read was just like, you know, you might as well pull her hair out. It would have been a better experience. The school kept insisting Mia was fine. There's nothing wrong. I said, well, she's getting D's on all her reading comprehension. They go, that's passing. They literally said that. And they said, we just benchmarked her and we assure you she's on grade level. And they are the experts, right? But I knew there was something wrong. And I said to them, I said, okay, I'm not holding you to anything, but like if money weren't an object, if I could afford to have my kid tutored over the summer, this was the end of second grade. I said, how many days a week would you recommend that I tutor her? Three. I mean, seriously, why are they telling you that they recommend your child's being tutored three days a week in the summer if there's not a problem? I don't know whether they didn't know what was wrong and that's why they didn't want to say anything, whether they are so um, pressed not to put it, give kids help, they know the help they have doesn't work. I don't know what it was, but, you know, she was pushed under the rug. Mia was getting some extra reading support at school. She'd get pulled out of class to work with a reading specialist. But the way Mia tells it, the reading teacher just got frustrated with her, yelled at her even. Listen to Mia describe what it was like. She's like, Mia, that is inappropriate. You should be able to read this like a normal child. She was like, you got to look alive, got to read it quickly to succeed. And I'm like, just give me a chance. (laughs) Mia would wake up in the morning and say she had a stomachache. She didn't want to go to school. You hear this from lots of parents of dyslexic kids. Their kids will do anything to avoid going to school. I talked to one mom who told me her daughter learned to make herself throw up on command, didn't even need to stick her finger down her throat. By fourth grade, Mia was pretty miserable. She was being teased and bullied because she couldn't read. And none of her teachers seemed to be able to help her. I mean, I felt like I was kind of disconnected from the rest of my class because the teachers knew how to teach them. But they didn't know how to teach me. It was at this point that something serendipitous happened. Liz Hembling explains. My mother, her dearest oldest friend from 20 years ago, they went to um, a lecture together and they were sitting in the car. And my mom, you know, she lives with me and so she knows Mia like intimately well. And she said to her, she said, you know, I think Mia thinks in pictures you know, and described what's going on with the reading and how she reads and what's going on. And that she, the way that she thinks is such a visual way. And her friend Sue looked at her and said, you know, maybe she's dyslexic. This friend happened to know quite a bit about dyslexia. She was working as a tutor at a nearby private school that specializes in kids with language-based learning disabilities. And she'd been trained in something called Orton-Gillingham, It's an instructional approach for people with dyslexia, named after Samuel Orton and Anna Gillingham. They were pioneers in the field of dyslexia research back in the 1920s and 30s. They came up with an approach to work with kids with dyslexia, and people are still using it today. People trained in Orton-Gillingham typically tutor students one-on-one. It's a phonics-based approach that focuses on how words are made, the discrete sounds and syllables. This is not the way most kids are taught to read, What's known as whole language is still dominant in most public schools. That approach assumes students will learn the rules of language if they just read a lot, if they're exposed to lots of print. The focus is more on the meaning of words, not the mechanics of how words are made. 
There might be some instruction in phonics, but it's not an intensive, systematic approach to teaching kids the rules of language. And that's the trouble when you're dyslexic. Your brain is wired differently, and the rules of language don't just come to you. You have to be explicitly taught. It's like there's a secret code and you must learn the key. The common perception is that dyslexia is about confusing letters and reading them backwards. But neuroscience has shown that's not quite right. All beginning readers have a tendency to mix letters up and read them backwards. The problem for dyslexics is they get stuck at that beginning reader stage. Their brain does not easily pick up on the ways that letters and sounds correspond. After that conversation in the car with Liz's mom and her friend, Liz's mom came home and told Liz about it, and Liz decided to have Mia tested for dyslexia. There's a battery of tests that have been around for decades that can diagnose dyslexia quite accurately. Mia did, indeed, have dyslexia. So Liz hired her mother's friend, the Orton-Gillingham-trained tutor, to work with Mia after school. She'd teach me in a way that kind of made sense to me. So she'd do phonographics, which is like she would take... She would take, like, cards, and she'd do, like, X, and that means out. And so I kind of got that way. <laughs> yeah. So she was teaching you kind of, like, the parts of language and the... Uh, yeah, like the prefixes and suffixes. And was this, the, was this the first time you felt like you were really learning to read? Yes, really. But, yeah. <laughs> Had anyone taught you anything like that? Prefixes, suffixes, the sounds of the language in uh, school? No. Tutoring was costing about $500 a month. I asked why Liz didn't take the test results to Mia's public school and get them to give Mia the instruction she needed. There's a federal law that says public schools must educate kids with learning disabilities. But Liz just didn't think the school would really be able to help. I felt like the school was so inept in, in not even diagnosing her that why would I even go to them? Because they can't fix If they don't even know what it is, how are they going to fix it? They don't have anyone there to help. Like, I really realize they don't have anyone trained. They have no one there to help her. So what's the point to sit there and, and beat on them to get them to help her? And all they can do is put her in programs that would actually undo what I'm paying to fix? I mean, it just it seems sort of pointless. Mia was making progress with the tutoring, but as she moved into fifth and sixth grade, it started to be too much. There was more and more reading required at school. The tutoring sessions came after a full day of school and sports and after-school activities. Mia was exhausted. Liz started to think her daughter needed to be in a special school, where she would get the right kind of help during the school day. But unless you hire a lawyer and make a case that public school has failed your kid, you're probably not going to get access to one of those special schools, unless you're willing to pay the tuition. And tuition at one of those special schools? In Maryland, where Liz and Mia live, $30,000 and up. It's a lot of money. It's a college tuition. And, you know, it's just, you know, I guess, you know, look, if you had medical bills for cancer or whatever, you'd come up with the money too. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's not a nice to do. I mean, there are families that send their kids to private school every day just because they want to. This isn't really an option. Like, she needs this. Liz and her ex-husband decided they could figure out a way to make it work. So Mia applied to Odyssey, a private school in Maryland that specializes in teaching kids with dyslexia. Mia did not want to go. 
She was in sixth grade and had finally found a group of really good friends. But as part of the process of applying to Odyssey, Mia got to visit the school for a day. When I actually got there, I just had this moment of, like, complete silence. I just looked at the school. And if you don't know what Odyssey looks like, it's just this big, white, beautiful house. And it has this garden and has a playground, has woods. And I'm like... Wow. At first, she was wowed by what a fancy private school looks like. But soon, she realized the differences were deeper. I went through the whole day. Everybody was really kind to me. And I'm like, I really want to go here next year. I remember it as being the best educational experience that I've really had. Just one day at that place was better than all of my, like, I don't Seven years I was in public school. When she got accepted to Odyssey, it, she'll tell you it was the best day of her life. She has her, her acceptance letter still on her wall to this day. I've talked to a bunch of kids who've gone from public school, where they felt like no one was helping them, to a school that specializes in helping kids with reading disabilities. And it's not only the teachers and the teaching methods that feel right. It's the other kids. Finally, you're in a place with your people. That's how kids have described it to me. It's a huge relief, and you're finally learning to read. I jumped three grade levels in two years. In two years versus seven years of teaching that could not get me on grade level, and somehow, some way, they get me on grade level. Mia says sometimes she sees the girls who used to tease her back in elementary school. Some of these people go to my pool and like I, I'll see them and they're like, can you read yet? And I'm like, actually, I'm on grade level. So goodbye. The story ended well for Mia. She got the help she needed, made big progress, and is headed to a private high school next year that doesn't specialize in kids with reading disabilities. She says she's ready for a more traditional school. But what if she hadn't gone to Odyssey, I ask her. How does she think she'd be doing now? If Odyssey had floated away, if it never existed, I I don't know if my mom would even allow this, but I think I would have dropped out of school and got a job. Her mom is sitting across the kitchen table. She's kind of shaken by what Mia just said. Honestly, to hear your own child who tells you they want to be a lawyer, who's wants to go to college, you know, really see that as what their path would have been, you know, it, it really, it's, it's kind of shocking. But, you know, I saw that. I mean, I think I had, I saw that road. I knew that was the road. Things do not end well for a lot of kids with dyslexia and other learning disabilities. Half of students with learning disabilities end up facing at least one school disciplinary action, such as a suspension or expulsion. Nearly 20% drop out of high school. More than half end up in the criminal justice system. And those are the averages. If you have a learning disability and you're a black or brown kid or a kid from a poor family, the stats are worse. Students like Mia, who get the help they need, they're more the exception than the rule. 
you know, when you talk about equity in education, the biggest inequity we see are between people who can afford private testing, private tutoring, private schools, and people that are just stuck in the system that doesn't even recognize that their kid has a problem. Liz has become an activist on this issue. She helped start a local chapter of an organization called Decoding Dyslexia. Parents are just left with their kids in the system being failed. And that's why Decoding Dyslexia started. This is not to help our children. My child is going to be helped because I write a check to an amazing school. But, you know, this is to help other kids who don't have that advantage. Decoding Dyslexia is a parent-led grassroots organization with chapters in every state. The group is pushing for school districts to test every child for dyslexia when they first enter school, because the earlier you catch it and start a kid in tutoring, the better. The organization is also calling for mandatory teacher training on what dyslexia is and how to teach dyslexic kids. And they're fighting an even more basic battle, getting schools to acknowledge that a child has dyslexia. Many parents say educators tell them the federal special education law prohibits schools from using that term. They won't even use the word dyslexia. We see this all the time. These parents get the diagnosis. I mean, it happened to me, too. And like, oh, yeah, we don't use that word. This was such a problem in schools across the country that back in October 2015, the U.S. Department of Education issued a special letter that clarified there is nothing in the federal special education law that prohibits schools from using the word dyslexia. In fact, the letter reminded school districts, you are under a legal obligation to determine if a kid has a specific learning disability, including dyslexia. So why is there such reluctance on the part of schools to use the word? Here's what Liz Hembling thinks. I think if they say dyslexia, now they are duty-bound to fix it, and they know they can't. Think about it. The proven method for helping a kid with dyslexia is to put her in intensive one-on-one tutoring as many as five days a week. Schools might be able to put two or three kids with one tutor, but could public schools do even that? Think about the cost. The best scientific estimates put the rate of dyslexia at about 7 to 12 percent. There are more than 50 million kids in American public schools. At the low end, that means 3.5 million kids could need intensive one-on-one or small group tutoring at some point during their education. Add to that the fact that most public school teachers, including special ed teachers, have little to no training in how to teach reading to kids with dyslexia. It's not just about the dyslexic kids. The dyslexic kids need it, you know, the most because this is the only way they can learn to read. But we have a literacy crisis. Liz Hembling's point is that all kids should be taught how to read in a systematic and structured way that emphasizes the rules of how language works. There is lots of research to back her up. Back in the late 1990s, Congress created something called the National Reading Panel. The group issued a landmark report that summarized the research on how best to teach reading. It found that the most effective way is to focus on something called phonemic awareness. That's the ability to notice, identify, and manipulate the individual sounds or phonemes in spoken words. The panel also found that systematic instruction on how to decode words and recognize the relationship between letters and spelling patterns improved reading achievement. There was insufficient evidence to show that a common approach, basically encouraging kids to read a lot, worked. Yet this is still the approach many schools take when it comes to reading. Some kids will learn to read well this way. 
But Liz Hembling's point, and the point of many other activists and researchers, is that all kids could be taught to read much better. But convincing schools to change their ways and finding teachers trained in proven methods is a very, very big task. Wait, in the front of the book. Dang it. Wow, she does have a lot of cookbooks. I'm back with Mia and her mom, and I'm looking at a bookshelf crammed with cookbooks. Mia takes one down and starts reading a recipe. Spoon a fourth of a cup of the chocolate frosting into the freezer and... Mia gets stuck on a word, skips over it, and keeps going. Spoon the vanilla frosting into a freeze-weighed Ziploc bag. What does that mean? Freeze what? There it is again, the same word she just skipped over. Freeze-weighed. Where's that? <laughs> there you Here. Freezer-weight. Dang it! <laughs> that was Mia's dyslexia, something she and her mom can laugh about now. Mia will always have dyslexia. There is no cure. Your brain will always be wired in a way that makes reading challenging. But neuroscience research shows that when dyslexics get the right kind of tutoring, their brains actually change. You can see it on brain scans. Some people with dyslexia never become great readers. They'll rarely pick up a book unless they have to. But some people with dyslexia become voracious readers. That's Mia. She loves to read now. I just finished Death on the Nile by Agatha Christie. It's it's a really good book, and it's full of, like, plot twists, and I just love it. I want to read Murder on the Orient Express, but my tutor said he was, quote-unquote, murdered out. <laughs> that was 14-year-old Mia. We also heard from her mom, Liz Hembling, and our correspondent, Emily Hanford. Emily's working on a documentary about dyslexia, why so many kids aren't being identified or treated, and what could be done about it. It's one of four documentaries we are working on for release this fall. You'll be able to hear them on this podcast and on public radio stations across the country as well. You can listen to all of our education documentaries on a dedicated podcast we call Documentaries from APM Reports. You'll find information about how to subscribe on our webpage, apmreports.org. Click on Podcasts at the top of the page. We'd love to know your thoughts and questions about dyslexia, learning disabilities, and anything else about education. To get in touch with us, you can email us at contact at apmreports.org. We're on Facebook at APM Reports, and on Twitter, our handle is at educatepodcast, one word. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM. <laughs>